Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wondered if I could start out asking you about Martin Luther King Day. Um, You know, it's as someone who knew him, it's a day when people tell and retell King's story a lot. I'm curious why you think it's important to continue to tell Dr. King's story. Well, you know, he's... He talks about love. Love is an unending um, cycle of feeling and emotion. And the man was so strongly bent on trying to make Americans love each other. He really wanted all people to love each other. But particularly the country in which we live, um, it's easier than people think. They make it harder than it needs to be. Uh, So I think he, he lived such an exemplary life. Uh, he was consistent, and he was a man who practiced what he preached. That's one of the things I like about him, that he didn't just preach about love, he actually loved everybody, and showed it all the time. I've seen him in, in situations where, to him, it makes no difference, because he believed that each of us, which is true, each of us was created by God. And underneath the skin, we're all the same. And don't believe it. You cut yourself, I cut myself. We both bleed, and the blood will look the same. And we forget that it's as simple as that, that the blood looks the same. And he loved it. And so I think we ought to honor uh, a man who uh, died uh, preaching, loving, living love for each other. A hope for our country that we could come together as one people. Yeah. Um, what are one or two memories of Dr. King that stand out to you when you think of him? I think there's so many. Um, it's hard to pick one or two or three uh, because I saw him in totality. Mm-hmm. I saw him when he was happy, saw him when he was sad. I think he died of a broken heart. Um, he went to make a statement about war. He had been at home on a particular day, had the television on, and saw them burning little children. He said, now I've got to speak out. See, he was very close to President uh, Johnson, and he knew it would embarrass him if he criticized him. He didn't want to openly criticize him just for the sake of being critical. But when he saw children being burned, he said, I've got to speak. And once he spoke out against the war in Vietnam, he was practically killed off, symbolically. He, he was killed a year later, mm-hmm. but uh, symbolically, everybody walked away from him. He lost his friends, supporters, his uh, financiers. Everybody just turned against him. And um, I hated to see that. I saw him in deep despair because of it, because he said he couldn't understand. How is it my friends don't understand? You expect your enemies to oppose you and criticize you and walk away from you. But you don't expect your friends, you 
want loyalty and love and support. And he didn't get any of that. So I saw him in absolute despair. And he died right after that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you did for Dr. King, what your relationship was with him? Well, that was a joke I like to tell. He really had such faith in everything I could do. And he said, you know, Zenona can do everything. So when people asked him, what did I do, I said, he thought I could do everything, so he gave me everything to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was hired to do one thing and didn't get a chance to do that much. Um, but I ended up being a multitude of, um, I, I guess, roles for him and with him. Uh, I was uh, hired to be in the office and to kind of man things and supervise. See, there are a lot to march, and you just can't get up and march and go to the streets. you got to prepare. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of preparation, and I had to help do that. So those mundane, well, they're not mundane, but those things I had to do. But any time there was a special occasion, I had to be the one who chaired the special occasion. This fundraiser, I had to be the one to raise the funds. When somebody important was coming in to visit, I had to do that. And so I did a multitude of things, but I liked everything. And then the one I liked the most, well, it's flattering to me, is I became his confidant. Um, when he had troubles, he had moments of uncertainty or moments when he just wanted to share. Uh, he didn't want to do it with everybody. And so I was the person he entrusted with his innermost secrets. So that's very special to me. Yeah. Um. What what are some of the things that you learned from being so close to him? What did he teach you? I learned that he practiced what he preached. I've met so many people in my small years of living. Um, I'm only 31, you know. Uh, again and again and again. Um, and so I, I hear people making preachments all the time, and they don't mean a mm -hmm. word they say. And people will tell you anything. Promise you the moon. Do nothing. He was a man who I saw practice what he preached. He preached love, and it didn't matter to him. A poor, broken-down man, poor, broken-hearted man, uh, a woman in despair, a child hopeless. It didn't matter. When mm -hmm. someone came to him for a plea of help, he'd send them to the right place. He'd take time to counsel if that's what they needed. And there's a joke, and I'm not sure I want you to write about this, but there was a man one day, it's a funny little story. Um, we were walking down the street, and this man recognized Dr. King, and he ran up to him and he said, uh, 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 Dr. King, uh, I, I, I'm glad I, I saw you had an impediment. He said, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I just had some discrimination uh, heaped upon me. Dr. King said, well, what was that? He said, uh, I was turned down uh, for a job. White man wouldn't hire me. He said, what happened? What was the job? He said, I was applying to be a, a, a radio announcer. <laughs> and cause that was a private moment. We, well, he didn't laugh. I did. And, um, yeah. and when he laughed, you know, he, he kind of chuckled. He said, well, we'll have to, you know, race it. we got to keep fighting racism. So he comforted the man by saying, Mm -hmm. Racism is still with us, and we got to clear. But you know, everybody came to Dr. King with a problem. Everybody came to him for solace. Everybody came to him to share. Everybody came to him for everything. But he always took time. 
I don't care what he's doing. He would take time to talk to anybody. Um, and I like that about him, that he just didn't shun people. Um, if someone were laden with a heavy heart, he'd take time to listen. He knew he couldn't solve every problem, but sometimes it seemed that just telling him and sharing with him was uh, lifting some of that burden, and he took time mm -hmm. to do that. I like that about him. He never was too busy to take care of somebody's need. Hmm. Is there any part of Dr. King's legacy that you wish more people talked about oh, that yes, you think has yes. been maybe forgotten? or Yes, yes, yes. Loving each other, blacks and whites, is easier than we think. We made it harder than it's necessary. Hmm. It's very easy to love your neighbor, as they say. If we could just eliminate, maybe blindly, we could be kinder to people because we can't see what color they are. Color is about to destroy our world. Color. And I still am trying to figure it out where and why we have to have the superiority of a feeling hmm. when there's no basis for it. Just because someone is white, that'll make you better. I feel pretty good about myself. I'm black and I'm really proud. Because, you know, I know one thing, as you know and everybody knows, we had nothing to do with this. You know, I'm here the way I look because it was made possible by some other force, not me. I didn't choose to be here. Because sometimes I said, I would have chosen to be white if I could have chosen, because I'd have a better world in which to live. I can't choose my color. Of course, I don't really seriously want to. I'm proud. I'm very proud. Because I have done what Dr. King wanted us to do, is you know, search your heart, not your external look. Mm -hmm. If your heart is right, you can love anybody. You can be kind to people regardless of who they are. Hmm. And I don't want to just talk about Dr. King because I know you also accomplished so much yourself. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about desegregating the hospitals in Atlanta because I've, I've personally never heard that story told. The hospital? The Which hospitals. That I desegregated? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm very proud of that um, mm -hmm. because I took on a task that was pretty big, but I've never run away from anything, uh, the size of a thing. If I see a need, I'm going to see if I can help get rid of the problem if there's one. Mm -hmm. And our major hospital in Atlanta um, was the public hospital. Everybody has to go there, black or white, rich or poor. And they treated poor people differently than they treated, you know, white people. But the main thing I really fought, uh, and it's interesting how what my initial plan was, was different what my marvelous results became. I was fighting for the black doctor's ability to practice in any hospital in the city. They had to practice in this hospital, so it doesn't matter whether the patient had money to go to a better hospital for a better environment. It didn't matter because the doctor couldn't practice. So I thought if we got rid of that problem, then people would have the mobility to get better health care. And I found out in the meantime there were other problems that I took care of too. But the main thing was the doctor's ability to move. And it was just recently that I found out what a big step that was because I took 
the fight all the way to Washington. I um, called President Johnson and I told him, uh, I said, you know, I had written him a letter and asked him to help us in this fight. Mm -hmm. And I didn't hear from him. And so I wrote him a letter beyond that and said, um, I'm really disappointed because Dr. King thinks you're just the cat's meow. Dr. King thinks you're wonderful. And you didn't even care about the um, people being mistreated here in facilities that you, he meaning the government, financed this segregated system. Mm -hmm. And I said, so I'm really disappointed in you. And I ended up with an audience with him. And that was a big moment that I didn't think was going to happen. But you know, I think big, and sometimes I got some sense, so I said, oh, this may not happen, but I'm going to try it. And so I got an audience with him. And um, do you know after the, that meeting with him, um, uh, no more than five weeks, uh, he announced, he issued an edict that all the hospitals, I didn't know all the hospitals in the United States were desegregated, I mean were segregated, but they all were. And so he issued an edict that all the hospitals in the United States were now desegregated. Big moment, big moment. Mm -hmm. And, but what I didn't realize until just recently, recently meaning like a year ago, a woman who worked in one of our good hospitals um, said to me, she said, you know, I'm going to speak, and when I went in, I went for some, what do you call it, blood test or something, a blood pressure. And she said, um, she didn't act like she recognized me or anything. She hardly spoke. She looked like she's mad at the world, but I didn't get into her business. But she said, I want you to know that I'm going to speak for myself and everybody in this hospital who looks like me. We want to thank you because I'm here in this hospital now because of you. Because what happened is, what I didn't realize, is once we freed the doctors and opened the hospitals up for everybody, then assistants could go and apply for jobs, nurses could go and apply for jobs, everybody who works in a hospital could move closer to where they worked, I mean where they lived or whatever the reason is they want to change locations. They were free to do it. So now I really felt like this was monumental. I knew it was a big task, but it's really monumental. And I'm very proud of that. And I did that while Dr. King was still living, and he knew I was mm -hmm. fighting for that. It was very encouraging for him. And I, he asked, did I need him? I said, no, let me try this by myself. And I didn't want to call on him, but uh, he knew I'd done it. And he was so praiseworthy when we got the accomplishment. I said, well, I tossed your name around. I said, I'm so praiseworthy. You weren't as good as he, he thought you were. <laughs> so we had a big laugh. About it. He said, I don't mess up my name. I said, well, I'll try not to, but I threw that in. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm fearless. You know. um, I wonder if you could tell me about your time as a TV host and an executive at Turner. Yeah. Um, how... How were you able to use that platform that you had to continue making a difference in that arena? Well, all my stories, I said, this is an interesting story. <laughs> but I had no intentions of going into television. I was happy doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But my good friend, Ralph McGill, was the publisher of the Atlanta Constitution, which is our local newspaper. And uh, he and I had a real love affair. I liked him and enjoyed being with him. Mm -hmm. And he liked my approach to race relations. You know, he really always praised it. But, you know, you handle, said, you teach, what did he say? You teach a lesson without preaching a sermon. 
And I was very flattered by what he would tell everybody about me, how wonderful I was in race relations. So what he would do is he said more people should know me. And he set up like he was always getting engagements. And so sometimes he would just pass them on to me like at the last minute he couldn't go. And he said, but I'm sending my substitute and I would be the substitute. So this particular day was a day, um, a, a luncheon or well, a conference of white uh, Christian, a religious journalist. Mm -hmm. And I told them that Dr. King thought the press was just so helpful and so wonderful in the struggle for equality that they make the story, you know, broadly and widely uh, accessible to people. And he loved the press and was responsive to the press when they called. And I said, but I don't happen to agree with Dr. King. Don't tell him I said that. I've joked about that. But I said, the reason I don't agree with him is that here over here, the press is a lily white environment. You have um, a lily white uh, assignment editor who gives a story to a lily white reporter who takes his lily white photographer. They go to the scene of some black people who can't swim in the public swimming pool and talk about how terrible it is. They shut out and they can't come. They bring the story back to a lily white processor who gives it to a lily white writer who gives it to a lily white anchor who lives it to a lily white audience. And I said, what's the difference between this shut out and that shut out? Nobody was on television. No black person at all. And so that was my speech to this white group. Well, all heck broke out. And Mr. McGill called me and said, what did you tell those people? And they called it from everywhere and said, what's the matter with her? You know? And I said, oh, golly, I just got a call myself from one of the TV stations, and the, the general manager wants to take me to lunch. And I said, I want to be brave enough to go, but if I'm not back by 1230, send out an APB on me, because I, <laughs> I think they've hung me up a tree. <laughs> But what happened is, I did go to lunch. The general manager said, you really embarrassed us today, or yesterday when it was. Said, we really have had our eyes closed. We didn't even notice. And we're going to change it, and we want you to help us. And so right away, I know they were trying to think, of, can you know, you know any Negro at all, you know, who's black, can come on? I thought that's what he was going to ask me, and I said, what do you have in my head? He said, well, we're going to have to do something right now. We're going to change our image. And this was the CBS affiliate who now is doing this particular talking. And so he said, um, I said, well, I'll have to think of somebody. He said, oh, no, we got the person in mind who we want to help us do that. I said, oh, okay, but who is it? And he said, you. Me? I don't know a thing about television. He said, well, we like your style. We like this. We like that. And so to make the story not so long. It ended at that time, uh, the talk show format was the format of the day. Mm -hmm. And so we created a, a talk, I mean, a, a, a talking format and set it up and they named it that manager on the Clayton Show. And then they wrote about it. it was a huge success. White people responded to me more than black people. It was just a huge success from the first day. And so um, I became the it. But the best thing about that, not the fact that I had a pretty face, not too bad, of course, but I opened the door into this day, and that was a hundred years ago. I opened the door of opportunity 
then we got a black anchor, and then we got a black reporter, and then we got black processor. You know, everything happened in now Atlanta's one of the major markets. Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, things have changed. But I'm really flattered when I go place and people said, did you study television in college? And I said, they didn't even have television when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, when I chalk up the kinds of things that just takes courage, get up and do something. Hmm. There's something for each of us to do. There's something that we can do. And it will just be committed to let me help do this. Feeding the people on the street. I see people every morning when I'm going to my office, sleeping in the streets. I'm now trying to house them, you know. I can't do everything, and nobody can. But you don't have to do everything. You can save one life at a time, help one person at a time, help one bigot at a time. I don't know, you knew about my story, Calvin Craig, didn't you? The Ku Klux Klan. Yes. Uh And that's one of my favorite stories because mm-hmm. it's a simple example of a big problem. The man just was wonderful. I had no idea. But I didn't, he didn't scare me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't try to make preachments to him. I didn't beat him over the head about you racist, you didn't call names. And didn't, I didn't do any of that. I talked to him. I just talked about how idiotic his thinking was, you know. And he was going home every night telling his family, oh, that Miss Clayton is a wonderful person. He never told me that. Mm-hmm. But his friends would tell me, his friends tell me. So the day he announced he was coming out, I mean, it was a surprise to me as well. But I think I, I know, you know, what happened, because I know what happened to us as we met every day. I saw him every single day for months, for months. Do you think that's a model for how people can change that one-on-one relationship? Well, I certainly point to that. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that, you know, everybody can do that. I don't know everybody wants to do that. Uh, But I use it as an example is I did it. And it, you know, didn't stop the world. And we still have, you know, Klansmen, so we didn't eliminate them. Mm -hmm. We still have hatred, but we changed that one. And I changed his circle of friends because they ended up being my friends. So I did have an impact on one story, one man who made a big difference in his world and certainly impacted mine. I'm curious what you think the continuation of Dr. King's work looks like today. Where where do you think that work is going today? Well, I look at this day, um, uh, the holiday when it's uh, a day on, not a day off, when Mrs. King started, um, people come together. Mm-hmm. I don't think you find many people fighting and kicking and screaming today on the holiday. You see people coalescing. Uh, we have marches all over the city, I mean, all over the country. We have people cleaning up dirty yards all over the country. Mm. You see people feeding people all over the country. You can do it one day, why not two? So I think it's um, a nice thing to do. Mm -hmm. And nobody kills, you know, you don't see people killing each other uh, just because you're helping to clean up somebody's dirty lawn or helping to feed some hungry person to close some naked man or woman. Um, it doesn't kill you. 
So if you can do it one day, you can do it two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where do you see work in the area of racial injustice that still needs to be done? I'm sorry. Work in the area of racial injustice. Where, where are the areas where that work still needs to be done in the U.S.? I don't think we have to pick a place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can make a difference wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, first, you go where your heart is. Your heart is where you go. So you and your heart are always together. Your heart is your inner feelings. And so wherever you are, <clears throat> you can make your presence be the catalyst for change. Because if it's in you to do right, you'll do right. You know, bank robber doesn't care nothing about you know, what, what his heart says. He wants to rob the bank. He wants to do evil. He wants to do bad. And that's what he goes for. And so people who want to be ugly plan to do that, and it's in their hearts to be ugly. But the converse of that is in my heart to do good. It's in yours. Do good. And so just follow your heart. I think there was a song to just follow your heart. Whatever you feel is a good thing to do, just do it. Just do it. Well, thanks, Ms. Clayton. That's I, I really appreciate all your wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely speaking with you. Thank you. So what do you have planned for the rest of the day? I know you're giving the lecture, but... Yeah. I don't know. They're in charge. They're in charge. <laughs> oh, yeah, they lead me. They're dragging you all over the place, I'm sure. <laughs> well, the lecture is at, well, the chapel, uh, President Spogan is speaking in chapel at 10.30. Mm-hmm. Um, and then her talk is set, and we're having lunch with him. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, her talk, and then there's dinner with students. It's a pretty full day. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. That's nice that she'll be able to spend some time with students. Right. That's cool. Yes. Yeah. So we I give you what you want? Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is one thing I would like for her to ask to include okay. in the story if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. And that is the impact you've had on recognizing so many African Americans through the Trumpet Award. Oh, sure. Yeah. I started a program called <clears throat> Trumpet Awards, and I really got that um, listening to Dr. King. It was his theory that he didn't feel like all white people hate us because they love to hate. He believed some white people hated us just because they didn't know us. That if they really knew that, in spite of the fact that as a people we've lived in servitude, and um, in spite of it, made great contributions. Hmm. White people don't know it, black people don't know it. And so he said, we have a duty then perhaps to help educate white America. what our people have been doing. And I kept hearing that ringing in my ears, and that's how I think I framed uh, the project um, while I was working at CNN, because uh, I had the support of my boss, Ted Turner, was very supportive of positive programming. And I wanted to do a program with dignity to tell those stories that have been untold. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, we've had you know 28, 29 years of success. But one, one day, a white woman 
uh, called me. She was from Mid-America and identified herself and said she was white and had two children. And she grew up in a house where her mother and her father both taught her that all black people were lazy. That all black men would rather stand in line to get a, um, a paycheck, I mean a, a welfare check, than to get a paycheck. That all black women would rather have a baby than have a job. So she grew up hating all black people, all, because they told her that. Hmm. She said, but through this program, she just looked upon it on TV and said, we piqued her interest. And she started going to the libraries and started finding out more about black people because she didn't know that anybody made a contribution. And she said she'd learned so much. It just changed her whole world. She said, I have two little girls. One is four and one is six. And I don't want them to grow up in the same ignorance I grew up in. So send me the tapes and help educate me further. And I'm gonna I'm a changed person now. Now that's one story we had several. But if you multiply those stories that I did hear from everybody in the world, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who felt that way, that we were just here siphoning from the coffers. You know, the those traffic light out there. Who could get by without the traffic light? Black person created that. You go to the airport in the world. Anywhere in the world, there's a defibrillator designed by a black man, right there somewhere. So if you think you're having a heart attack, you can be saved, you know, maybe, possibility. And so we just go on and on and on and on with the discoveries, the contributions of African Americans that white people don't know. Well, black people don't know either. And so once we learn about each other, Dr. King said he thinks the respect would broaden, and I believe that. Just like that one woman tells the marvelous story, I didn't know that. My parents taught me that black people are lazy. But I get questions all the time. I go to a party and why do black people all like loud music? I said, I don't know, because I'm black and I don't like loud music. <laughs> and I don't know what all black people do. You know, why do black people park their cars on their grass. I don't know, because I don't park mine on the grass. White people too often have those bigoted ideas and they change the attitude of what they feel. That's why I don't want to live next door to them, because they're going to park the car on my grass. Well, that isn't true. we got beautiful black neighborhoods all over the country. You know, some black people take care of their lawn. Some black people, you know, don't like lawn music. Why you won't put everybody in the same lump? Suppose we did that with all white people. We hate them because they all don't smell right. They all don't talk right. They all don't treat you right. What kind of world would that be? You know, the alternative to that is, suppose we turn the tables. What kind of world would this be? Now, we can turn the tables. If we all loved each other, we wouldn't have any of that to worry about. But we're very proud of educating um, an ill-learned white America. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And with that Trumpet Award, she has bowed so many uh, black people who've done such marvelous things, and they're recorded every year. So mm -hmm. she sends those tapes now 
to different countries or what we said tapes yeah. before and now you can go right on TV. Yeah. Sure. And Hundred eighty-five countries yes. around the world. Now, since oh, that's yeah, that's the whole world. <laughs> yes. So yeah. you know, I think sometimes about how how little uh, um, an effort can broaden just scopes and scopes of people. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so we talk to each other sometimes. Maybe we learn some things. Don't have to have a trumpet war to do it, but we don't have much exchange. You know, we are dividing now. Uh, I see more than before. You know, people used to come mm -hmm. together more than we do now. So I guess the ignorance continues to prevail, you know. I, I too, like Martin Luther King, wish for a better America. I really do. And I do what I can. And if everybody did what they could, we would have a better world. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.